Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Like this. Everybody knows that the secret to a perfect loaf of bread is properly kneading the dough, right? So it turns out that kneading bread is a fraud. Uh, it doesn't do what people think, and you don't have to do it. For hundreds of years, people have thought that kneading bread was required to get the strands of gluten proteins that are in wheat to align so that it will trap bubbles and you can have it rise and have nice fluffy bread. And the reality is that the proteins align pretty much by themselves uh, in the presence of water. I'm Nathan Mirvold, and I'm the author of Modernist Bread. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner. Thanks to Nathan Mirvold for bringing some science to bread making, finally, and for helping us introduce the theme of tonight's episode, perfection. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is a podcast. It's also a game show that's also live journalism where contestants tell us their most interesting IDKs or I don't knows. To judge these IDKs, we've put together a panel tonight of particularly clever and accomplished people. Would you please welcome the CEO of SoulCycle, Melanie Whelan, host of the GIST podcast, Mike Pesca, and the multi-talented co-founder of The Daily Show, Liz Winstead. Greetings to all of you. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. Let's start with Melanie Whelan. Here's what we know about you so far, Melanie. We know that before becoming CEO of SoulCycle, you studied engineering and economics at Brown. Then you worked for Starwood Hotels and helped launch Virgin America, where you not only designed uniforms, but also purchased jet engines. So Melanie Whelan, tell us something we don't know about you. So my second job out of college was designing an incredibly boring, lame line of electronics for Virgin to be sold in Target. But the highlight of the job was that I got to go to Necker Island to brief Sir Richard Branson on the line of incredibly sexy electronics we were making and direct a photo shoot of him in a pool with 15 consumer electronics products. And I seem to be the only one at the ripe age of 25 that saw the irony of putting an icon in a pool with electronics. Now, wait a minute. Necker Island is Sir Branson's private island in the British Virgin Islands, is that, that is right? correct, and his private home. And, and did you, for your service at Virgin, also get a private island? I did not, but I did get to stay in the staff hotel a couple islands away. Very nice to have you here, Melanie. Next up, Mike Pesca. Let's see what we have on you, Mike. We know that your broadcasting career began, sort of, at age 10, when you used to call into a New York Jets radio show. 
we know that for years you've made smart and really funny radio on just about every NPR show there is, and that you were the first NPR reporter to have your own podcast, which was called On Gambling with Mike Pesca. All right. true so far? All true. We know that when you left NPR for Slate to start your current podcast, The Gist, you pointed out in your resignation memo that NPR had had more CEOs in recent years than Italy has had prime ministers. That's true. <laughs> so let's hear something we don't yet know, please, about Mike Pesca. Well, among my talents, I can juggle jello. <laughs> And when you say juggle jello, you, you don't mean the powder before it's made. That would no, be pretty nifty. I can juggle it in the, in the box, but when prepared in cubes or in chunks, I can juggle it. All right. And our final panelist, Liz Winstead. We know, Liz, that you grew up in Minnesota. And although you moved away long ago, that you've only missed the Minnesota State Fair three times. We know that at age 12, you wanted to be an altar boy. Instead, you went on to co-create The Daily Show and Air America Radio. We also know that at age 35, you accompanied a Daily Show superfan to his senior prom. So, Liz, um, tell us something we don't know about you. Well, what you don't know about me is that I actually accompanied Richard Branson to a pool of jello. <laughs> That's not true. And I'm wearing my dog around my neck. That is something you didn't know. Yeah, in a, uh, what do you call what you wear ashes in? What is that called? Morbid? A morbid, a morbid <laughs> canister? Liz Winstead, Mike Pesca, Melanie Whelan, super excited to have all of you here tonight. Thank you very much. It's time to play our game, which is called Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it works. Contestants will come on stage to deliver their IDKs. Sometimes they'll put it in the form of a question to let you guess. Sometimes they'll just blurt it out. In any case, you can then interrogate them as much as you'd like. And once we've heard all the contestants, you will pick a winner. The IDKs are to be judged on three simple criteria. Number one, does it surprise you? Is it something you truly did not know? Number two, is it worth knowing? Does it go beyond the mere trivia, let's say? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? And to help with that last criterion... Let's bring out our real-time human fact-checker, Mr. A.J. Jacobs. Thank you. A.J. is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Year of Living Biblically. His new podcast is called Twice Removed. A.J., what are your qualifications, would you say, for fact-checking? Well, my next book is about building the biggest family tree ever, uh, one that connects the entire world, literally. And it turns out, this is true, Albert Einstein is my first cousin, three times removed, husband's third cousin. So I am officially related to, very closely to Einstein. I think that is exactly the credential we're looking for, AJ. Right. So welcome, and uh, I think you'll do a fantastic job. All right, it's time to play. Tell me something I don't know. Tonight's theme, you will recall, is perfection. How we're always in pursuit of something more, something better, something perfect. So would you please welcome our first contestant, Priya Modapali. Hi there, Priya. Where are you from? What do you do? I'm an applied animal welfare scientist. An applied animal welfare scientist. Okay, so I'm eager to learn something from you. So are our panelists. Remember, Melanie Whelan, Mike Pesca, Liz Winstead. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? So it seems pretty intuitive that dairy cattle would want to spend their time out at pasture rather than being indoors. 
but dairy farmers tend to keep their cows indoors in order to have greater control over feed intake, among other reasons. And this directly translates to milk yield. So I was interested in looking at this from a cow point of view to see if they actually wanted to be out at pasture and how badly they wanted this. So seeing as how we're not cows ourselves, how do you think we could experimentally figure out what a cow wants and what a cow needs? Hmm. I think I'd work backwards. I'd order a glass of whole milk and a burger, and I'd look deeply into it, and I'd try to think of its motivation. (laughs) So, I guess I've never seen a cow at SoulCycle or galloping. They don't gallop. Cows are a non-galloping beast. They definitely gallop. (laughs) We don't know that. They do gallop? They do gallop. Yeah, if if you've ever seen a cow run after a cat. Pre buried the lead. Cows gallop. That's news here. So Priya, how would you try to figure out what cows want and need? Yeah, so we started with something really simple called preference testing. So we gave dairy cows a choice to be indoors or at pasture. They could move freely between the two environments. And using video footage and accelerometers, which are kind of like Fitbits for cows, um, we quantified how much time they spent in each area and what they were doing in each area. So um, accelerometers are capable of picking up lying, standing, and walking behavior. And so what we found was that when given a choice, yeah, dairy cows seem to want to be out at pasture, but they typically spent their days indoors and their nights out at pasture. So then, okay, we have a little bit of information about their preferences, but then we were interested in looking at how badly they preferred this. How motivated were they to gain access to this pasture? So we asked them to pay a price, a quote-unquote pay a price, um, and we made them work very hard, so walk incrementally increasing distances to gain access to pasture. And some researchers have actually asked them to push through increasingly weighted doors to gain access to pasture. And what the majority of the research really shows is that, yeah, dairy cows are willing to work really hard to gain access, but at night, not necessarily during the day. And we think this is because dairy cows tend to spend most of their night resting. And pasture allows them to kind of stretch out on their sides like they like to do when they're sleeping. Um, And it gives them a little bit more space so they can make decisions about where they lie down, who they lie down next to. So indoor housing isn't always conducive to this. You know, it's not really grass or grazing that's pulling these animals out, but the nightlife. Yeah. So we found that dairy cows that had that free choice actually produced more milk than a control group that was continuously housed. Um, and so it looks like that kind of element of choice is really important for production, but it also lets animals have a little more control over their life. Wow. Like pushing, pushing through obstacles to experience yeah. nightlife. I mean, if there's a little yeah. stamp on the hoof, yeah. you're describing my 20s pretty much. <laughs> And they'll push up to 50 kilograms, and that's actually the point at which they physically cannot push anymore. Has this led you to research any other animals and their preferences? So I haven't, but loads of research has been done on preference testing and laying hens and pigs and lots of farm animals. For example, um, hens will work very, very hard to gain access to nest boxes, which um, in, in most systems currently they don't have. Well, it seems like the, the finding is what they want is not to be domesticated animals. <laughs> well, actually, it's kind of awesome or because bacon. they get feed, water, and medical <laughs> yeah, care. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Given the other choice, if they had yeah. only known. <laughs> it's, yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, it's really good because you get feed, water, and medical care, which is, you know, wild animals don't get. It's, it's scary to be a wild animal. Right. Um, but on the other hand, you have a lot of behavioral restriction. Persuade us that your animal welfare instinct hasn't led you to either design the experiment in a way or interpret the data in a way to be soft on cows, hard on people. Maybe you're in the pay of big cow, for instance. (laughs) 
Um, we often blind these studies. Um, and actually, to be honest, I, I didn't expect the findings that I got. So um, you typically expect continuously housed animals to um, produce more milk because, you, again, you have that greater control over feed intake. They're machines. They're, they're constantly eating, and then they're resting, and then they're eating, and then they're resting. Um, but when they have a choice, they actually seem to spend more time lying down. And resting behavior is directly related to milk yield. And you have to think about a cow as like a marathon runner. They're expending so much energy to create the milk, the amount of milk that they do. So resting is so um, important for them. Before we finish up with Priya, let's check in with our fact checker, AJ Jacobs. AJ, the subject here, how to make your cow happy. Legit? It is legit. There is another study about cows and happiness. And this one said that if you call a cow by its name, as opposed to leaving them unnamed, that they produce 68 more gallons of milk every year. Now, this to me sounds a bit like correlation instead yeah. of causation. But I know that I do work better, Stephen, when you call me AJ as opposed to, like, that guy, the fact checker. All right, Frank. Uh, So we'll see how it goes from here. Yeah. Uh, Priya Motopali, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Panelists, later you will be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner. For now, let's welcome our next contestant, Eric Linsalata. Eric, tell us a bit about yourself, please. I'm originally from Jersey. I live in New York now, and I am an engineer with the New York City Parks Department. Very good. The floor is yours, then. Take it away. Okay. So the 1972 Clean Water Act was supposed to return our waterways to a a condition before pollution. And in this pursuit of perfection, there were some unintended consequences, especially in New York City. Can you tell me how the Clean Water Act is causing the shoreline of New York City to collapse? I'll give you a hint, and that uh, you've heard of collapsing infrastructure, but in this case, it's being eaten. Ah, so the clean water, has it been a healthier environment for marine creatures Absolutely. to live? Melanie Whelan. All that soul cycling is good for the brain, apparently. All right, sounds like our panelists have done an awesome job of kind of Starting to figure out what you've got. Okay, so um, first you have to understand that a lot of the shoreline of New York City, especially uh, Manhattan and the older parts of the city, are actually built out past the original island. And a lot of the times they use foundations made of wood. Of course, wood is a natural biological material and it's subject to all kinds of decay, one of which is that it's the food source of tiny uh, marine organisms Uh, called marine borers commonly that get into the wood and and eat at it until it basically disintegrates. So this wasn't really a problem for a lot of the 20th century because we had been piping out all this sewage and industrial waste into the water, and a lot of the marine life had died out. Um, The Clean Water Act came along in 1972, and um, the waters have gotten a lot cleaner since then, but... um, a lot of uh, oysters, fish, um, even whales and dolphins are coming back to the harbor, as are the marine boars. And now the wood is all getting eaten again at the same time. So uh, Manhattan is particularly hard hit. Um, all the rivers around Manhattan have wood structures. And uh, from what we've inspected so far, within the next decade or two, a lot of these structures are going to be collapsing or going to need to be closed before they collapse to to keep the public safe. So we're talking about um, roadways, we're talking about esplanades, we're talking about parks. So it's it's going to be a very expensive problem to fix. So what do you do about it? What's the city do? Um, There's a lot of things you can do. You can uh, rehabilitate the structures in place, like if the deterioration's not too far gone. You go in actually with divers 
and you find the places that the marine borers are attacking and you encapsulate it with concrete or with, um, with polymers or different kinds of materials to arrest the deterioration. Um, Who's you- doing something about this? That guy. No, I know you are. But like, with your friends, like with the government, like other marine borers, so like are a- you guys like a club? I'd like to know that our government is actually also chiming in. Yes. So they they definitely are. Um, obviously, more attention from the public, the voting public, is great. Um, or people who don't and, vote, because there's yeah. more of them. And there are a lot. Of- <laughs> There are a lot of community groups that are interested in both cleaning up the waterways and making sure that the parks and things along the waterways are stay open and stay uh, safe and up to snuff. Is it happening in New Jersey as well? And do you care more or less about that? <laughs> so actually, there was something in the news a while ago. I don't know how true it is, but that a lot of people in New York were getting really upset at New Jersey because they're benefiting from how much better, relatively, New York is doing in cleaning up the water and a lot of people in New Jersey uh, are not doing a lot to, to do their share. It's the same harbor, though. That is, by the way, the quintessential definition of a New York environmentalist. We care about the water. We What, New Jersey's benefiting? Screw them! <laughs> A.J. Jacobs, the downside of clean water, the proliferation of marine borers. What do you know? Eric knows his stuff, and we're counting on you to save New York and possibly New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> Interestingly, New York Harbor is also home to something called the Billion Oyster Project, Mm -hmm. where they're trying to get a billion oysters to grow in the cleaner water in New York Harbor. And to create the homes for the oysters, they've dumped tons of porcelain into the harbor. And the porcelain comes from 5,000 old toilets. Eric Linsalata, such an interesting IDK. Thank you so much for playing. Would you all please welcome our next contestant, John Marciano. Come on, John. Nice to see you, John. Uh, What's your story? What do you do? I live in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and I am an author of books for kids and adults like Whatever Happened to the Metric System and The Witches of Benevento. Very good. What do you have to tell us tonight about perfection, then? In 1921, a bill was put before the U.S. Congress that proposed adding a 13th month. This new month was to be called Vern, so that the new American calendar would go January, February, Vern, March. (laughs) So my question is, what in God's name were the bill supporters thinking? Um... Does Vern, the, the fact that it's the third month, does this have something to do with the vernal equinox? Is that something uh, to do with our Yes, answer? that's how they came up with that rather unfortunate name, yes. Yeah. The best hint I can give is think of the math of a deck of cards. Right, there are uh, 13 cards per suit. Yep. 52 yeah. weeks in the year. Mm. 13 months. Right. Four weeks. Yes. To even out the number of weeks in the year. Hit on soft 16 yes. against the dealer's eight. <laughs> right. Is it somehow a way to shorten Women's History Month? <laughs> All right, John, I feel like we're sniffing around it. You want to give us the yeah, real reason? Yeah, no, you guys are pretty close. The reason to add a month to the calendar is basically to create a year that has 13 identical months. Four weeks, 28 days, um... The problem with the year as it is, is that it has 52 weeks plus one or two days. Now, if you take these extra days and you make them weekless, like you, you know, don't assign them a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you then have what was called a 
fixed calendar. Now, the genius of the fixed calendar is that every date of every month will fall on the exact same day of the week. So um, the first of every month would be a Sunday, and every year would have 13 Friday the 13th. Can you imagine women's menstrual cycles? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was the progressive era, and one of the things that was put forward was that it would be easier for women to keep track of their menstrual cycles. The biggest supporter of this was George Eastman of Kodak. Pfizer. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Eastman not only financed the movement, but he actually was able to um, get endorsements from firms like uh, General Motors and U.S. Steel, who saw the enormous benefits of having um, these 13 identical months every year. I don't get a, a buzz in my head about why George Eastman... Why would that be exciting well, for him? Well, this was the age of business progressivism, and they would think about things like February had 14% less days, um, less business days film. than either of the ones before or after. But hundreds of firms actually adopted this 13-period um, calendar, and people like Henry Ford, the Secretary of Labor, um, the publisher of the New York Times, um, they all uh, were put on the National Committee for uh, Calendar Simplification, And with great hope, it it was put before the League of Nations. People thought it was going to pass, and then about 30 years later at the United Nations, it died pretty softly. Does the National Committee for Calendar Simplification still exist? No, it, it does not. The National Committee for Calendar Simplification, you know this was invented by some guy who forgot their anniversary, right? (laughs) Like, honey, we need a law about this. Maybe it's me, but... Are calendars that complicated? Yes. You know, it's not like assembling a barbecue. Well, John, you mentioned that firms, Eastman Kodak or Kodak, right? And U.S. Steel, did they use it? They did for a long time. Kodak only gave it up in like 1988. Um, So, So the question is, was there a benefit? So like I was thinking of you, Melanie, with SoulCycle. Like here you've got a company where people are making appointments all the time. And I don't know about you guys, but I have made mistakes where you think that Tuesday the 6th is actually Wednesday the 6th. And if this would eliminate it, in other words, if you knew that the 3rd was always a Monday and the 10th is always a Monday, couldn't you see that being kind of great? I think the surprise and delight of maybe it's Monday, maybe it's Wednesday, (laughs) is what makes life interesting. (laughs) They needed a simple slogan, feel the Vern. That would have worked. A.J. Jacobs' uh, proposal that John Marciano is telling us about for a more perfect calendar. What more can you tell us, truth-wise? Well, I love this idea. I know the panelists are are opposed, but I'm fully behind the 13-month calendar. And actually, it's not the first time that a 13-month calendar had been proposed. In the 19th century, the French philosopher Auguste Comte proposed a 13-month calendar. He named the months after great thinkers. So the months were called Moses, Homer, Descartes, Gutenberg. My birthday, for instance, is Aristotle the 23rd, in case you want to send a gift. John Marciano, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Thank you. We are now going to take a short break. When we return, more contestants, and we make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you'd like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit TMSIDK.com. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight are Melanie Whelan, Mike Pesca, and Liz Winstead. AJ Jacobs is our fact checker. And our theme, you will recall, is perfection. Now, to that point, earlier, we did a quick survey of our live studio audience, and we asked them to name a thing, a product, a process, whatever, that is in dire need of improvement and to tell us maybe how they'd improve it. So panelists, I'd love each of you to read one of these audience submissions. Melanie, want to tell us what you drew? Great. So Claude G. says that written music needs an update. It could be improved by using color and not just black and white print. It could show changes in tempo, dynamics, etc. Right on. Right on. Pretty neat idea. Great idea. Mike Pesca, do you have as good an idea for something that's badly in need of reform or improvement? No name was given, and here is the suggestion. Dating. Don't you think, though, that technology has made dating so much better? Or so much weirder? <laughs> Maybe? Yeah. I think people want to... It's like microwavable life. You know, when you bake an apple pie from scratch, it's awesome to make the dough and talk to the person you're making with it and smell it while it's cooking and then it comes out of the oven and then you cool. And the anticipation of that pie is awesome. But we've become a society where it's like, you know, I can buy this crappy thing for $3.99 in the freezer and it kind of smells like pie and it kind of tastes apple-ish and that's good enough. And I feel like when you go on Tinder, it's like, yeah, that guy with a cape will be fine. Capes come off. Liz, I believe you are holding on to one last audience submission. I am, and oddly, it is so perfect for me, Uh, being from Minnesota. We need a product that quickly and easily removes snow from cars. Hmm. The snow removal product would plug into the car lighter and like a Mylar heating blanket. Hmm. You like it? Would you use it in Minnesota? I feel what keeps you in shape in Minnesota is a really flimsy scraper because that thing breaks in 30 seconds and then you're using your arm or your kid and you just get the snow off. So no, I think this person's lazy and should get help. All right, let's get back to our game now. Would you please welcome to the stage our next contestant, Robert Convisar. Robert, nice to have you here. Where are you from and what do you do? Born and raised New Yorker. I've been practicing laser-assisted dentistry in Manhattan for 36 years. Lovely. Eager to hear what you have to tell us tonight. When you hear the phrase tongue-tie, you think of somebody that can't talk to members of the opposite sex, that can't talk to their superiors. But a tongue-tie is an actual anatomical structure. It's a little membrane on the floor of the mouth that attaches to the underside of the tongue. Now, in most people, you can move your tongue around, not a problem. But in many people, it's a problem. It can lead to snoring, sleep apnea, speech impediments, and social problems as a result. So the question now, why is a dentist a nursing mother's best friend? Why is the dentist the nursing mother's best friend? I would assume (laughs) there's something to do with teeth and nursing. Can you tell us more about the lasers and what you do with those? Uh, Anything that a general dentist would use a scalpel, a blade, a pair of scissors, or anything like that for, I've been using lasers for over a quarter of a century. Here's Here's a verb. Here's a verb, latch. 
Is, does that have something to do with it? Absolutely. 5% of all babies born in the United States are born with such a tight tongue tie that they cannot latch onto mommy's nipple and nurse. So mommy ends up with sore nipples, cracked nipples, mastitis and engorgement, which is very, very painful, and postpartum depression because she can't nurse her baby. Baby tries to latch, sucks in as much air as milk. Baby becomes very flatulent. The baby is labeled failure to thrive. The baby isn't gaining weight. So if we have a baby that cannot latch, traditionally, the way it's been treated is they take the baby into an operating room under anesthesia, and they remove the frenum, the tongue tie. Sometimes for newborns, they'll take a pair of scissors to the floor of the baby's mouth and snip the tongue tie. Ah. If you take a look at woodcuts of midwives from the 14th, 15th century, they always have a very, very long index finger because that's what was used to cut the tongue tie. Mm. Now, dentists that are trained in laser technology can take a laser and in a five-second procedure, we can vaporize the tongue tie, no needles, no Novocaine, no stitches, no scalpels, no blades, and as soon as it's done in the dentist's office, the baby is put right on mommy's breast and suckles like never before. And we're teaching this all over the world now. Is this on your Tinder profile? (laughs) How long has this uh, been available, this technology? Well, we've always had the technology. It's a matter of developing the technique, of developing the procedure, and that's been around for a couple of years. Yes, I would say that it hasn't been around for eight years, and I know this. Because you have an eight-year-old. My eight-year-old is in the audience tonight, and he actually had a tongue-tie situation, and now my son Emmett can stick his tongue out uh, quite successfully. (laughs) Are you doing it now, Emmett? I can't see you back there. (laughs) And why do you think as a species we've not evolved away from this? Why are 5% of babies still being born with with something like this? As babies develop, both in utero and then right after birth, not everything develops 100%. So the lingual frenum, this little membrane, in most people is supposed to dissolve just before or during or slightly after birth. And it doesn't dissolve in everybody, so some people have a little tight membrane there. Just a developmental anomaly. A.J. Jacobs, Dr. Convisar is telling us about not only the true uh, meaning uh, or a meaning of tongue-tied, but uh, the remedy. Should we be skeptical of a person who performs a certain surgery for a living telling us both how necessary and successful said surgery is, or is Dr. Robert Convisar entirely on the level? In my research, I did find the official name for tongue-tied is ankyloglossia, and according to one study, it can cause difficulties even into adulthood with kissing, licking one's lips, eating ice cream, and performing tongue tricks, (laughs) which is... Like a basic human right. Do so. you want to be a little bit more specific about tongue trips, or is this a, a family program? <laughs> uh, one caveat, though, I should note that there are tongue-tying skeptics out there who believe that it is way overdiagnosed and it's not as serious as some make it out to be. That's so. true. When we do something like this, a dentist doesn't do it in a vacuum. We work with lactation consultants. We are not the people that should be diagnosing this right off the bat. We need the help of excellent lactation consultants to do this. Dr. Robert Convisar, thank you so much for coming to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Fascinating. Thank you. And would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Eliza Strickland. Come on up, Eliza. 
Hi, Eliza. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. Uh, I live here in New York, and I am a journalist with the tech publication IEEE Spectrum, where I cover biomedical engineering and brain hacking. Mm, I think we are especially interested in brain hacking tonight, so let us know what you've got. So here is an experiment that some neuroscientists did. They took a lab rat and they trained it to press a series of levers in order to get a sweet reward. Then they gave it a drug that erased all of its memories, but the rat was still able to press the levers in the correct sequence and get its reward. So the question is, what did the neuroscientists do to the rat to make this possible? They, they smeared the levers with a certain kind of cheese, each more pungent than the last. Ooh, that would be good, but that would be cheating. I don't know the rules of rat hacking. <laughs> That's cheating. All of a sudden, we've run into an ethical dilemma. <laughs> Could they have given them a map or some kind of guide to take them along the levers? Well, no, it has to do with what they did to their brains. So they, they did something to implant it in the long-term memory. Yeah, you're getting there. And remember, I work with engineers who work with gadgets and hardware and what have you. Huh. Is it like when the dogs, when you get a new dog and they put a chip into their neck? Hey. All right, why don't you put us out of our misery and tell us how this actually works? Okay, so uh, there's a researcher at University of Southern California named Ted Berger, a biomedical engineer, and he is building a memory prosthetic. So this is a tiny electronic gadget that will be implanted in the brain. Eventually, for people who have memory problems, this gadget could do the job of brain cells that have failed. And theoretically, for people who have normal memories, it could actually provide perfect recall. So to get how this works, you have to understand that the brain is an electric organ. Uh, You have 86 billion neurons in your brain, and they communicate by sending out pulses of electricity. And uh, neuroscientists can record those pulses of electricity using electrodes, and then look for patterns in the activity. They'll see one pattern activity when you're remembering the name of the guy you just met at a cocktail party, and a completely different pattern when you're thinking about where you parked your car. So the idea with the memory prosthetic is that it would be implanted in the hippocampus, which is responsible for forming long-term memories. And when you're doing something like parking your car, there would be these tiny little electrodes that would pick up the pattern of activity associated with parking your car in this particular spot. And there'd be a microchip that would store that information until you need it. And then other electrodes that would stimulate your brain with that pattern of activity when you need to find your car. So the rat that I mentioned at the beginning had a very early prototype of this actual memory prosthetic. So could this eventually be that if I lost my memory and I could get Pesca's memory somehow put Ah. into my head? So like I'm walking around literally like knowing all your past and like doing all that? Yes, I'm so glad you asked or mentioned that. I think I'm not glad. Well, because... I think it might destroy you, Liz. You couldn't deal with what I've seen. No, seriously. (laughs) Yeah, actually, the same guy, uh, Ted Berger, has done this experiment with a donor rat and a recipient rat, and he recorded the pattern of activity from the donor rat when it was learning how to press the levers and gave that pattern of activity to the brain of a rat who'd never seen the levers and it knew how to do it. So he transplanted a memory. So could we get Stephen Hawking's brain and give it to Donald Trump? (laughs) 
seriously, how long until something like this becomes commercial? So this guy has a startup company called Kernel, and they are doing the very, very earliest human experiments. So we're getting there. It seems very appealing, but it has such downsides. Now, the whole idea of a perfect memory absolutely seems like, yeah, I'll sign up for that. No, you wouldn't. Everything that you experienced and that you remember through nostalgia, it's not as good as the first time. Proust, oh, those Madelines, they were totally overcooked. <laughs> they were dry. Right, right. Every, every childhood memory, your first love, my God, look at the braces on her. I mean, I'm just saying that a perfect memory, this is a Twilight Zone episode. It's, it's a curse. Yeah. But we'll know where our car is. <laughs> A.J. Jacobs, a prosthetic memory, which to me sounds like the implications would be potentially frightening, but also for all the cognitive decline that we see as people live longer could be also in humans amazing what can you tell us well as eliza says it is early days so who knows whether it'll pan out i i hope so despite the uh the black mirror implications uh but one of the the groups working on prosthetic memories is the the folks at darpa who invented the internet, which turned out, I thought it had turned out okay until, like, very recently. Eliza Strickland, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. And that concludes our round of audience contestants. We've heard really some amazing stuff tonight about the pursuit of perfection, or at least the pursuit of better. Let's give all our contestants a hand. Thank you very much. It is time now for our panelists to vote and pick a winner. They will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites, and the contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner. And then he or she will join us back on stage to play the next round with our panelists. So panelists, remember, when you're ranking the IDKs, there are three criteria to consider. Number one, did the contestant tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? So, who will it be? Eliza Strickland with her prosthetic rat memory, Dr. Robert Conbasar with the true meaning and the true impact of being tongue-tied, John Marciano with a more perfect calendar, Eric Linsalata with the downside of the Clean Water Act, or Priya Modapali with how to make your cow happy. While the votes are being cast, let me say this. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, would you please spread the word and maybe give it a nice rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to come tell me something I don't know, or if you want to come see the show live, please visit tmsidk.com. You will see our upcoming dates in New York City, as well as Washington, D.C., Boston, and Chicago. You can also find us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. Okay, the panelists' votes are in. Once again, thanks so much to all our contestants. Sadly, like I said, there can only be one winner. Our four runners-up, however, will each receive a certificate of impressive knowledge, which is suitable for framing. Tonight's winner of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, with her IDK about prosthetic rat memory, Eliza Strickland. Come on back up, Eliza. Congratulations. Liza, what prize could we possibly give you that's commensurate with uh, the value of your IDK tonight? Well, do you remember back at the top of the show when Nathan Mirvold told us about baking the perfect loaf of bread? So it turns out that kneading bread is a fraud. Uh, It doesn't do what people think, 
and you don't have to do it. Well, Eliza Strickland, we are sending you home with a three-month membership to the Bread of the Month Club from Zingerman's Famous Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Congratulations. (laughs) Eliza Strickland, you will also get to play the next round of our game along with our panelists. We are now calling this the reference round, and it works like this. The four of you will each have just a couple minutes to come up with a good IDK about tonight's theme, Perfection, but you get a reference book to help you out. We've got right here a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas, and we will randomly assign one volume to each of you. You'll then have a couple minutes to dig through it and come up with something interesting related to tonight's theme, Perfection. All right, go. While they are working, we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll hear what they came up with, and then our live audience will whittle these four people down to two, and those two will go head-to-head in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Welcome back. It's time for Melody Whelan, Mike Pesca, Liz Winstead, and Eliza Strickland, our audience winner tonight, to tell us something we don't know about perfection based on their having spent a couple of minutes with an encyclopedia. So let's hear first from our audience winner tonight, Eliza Strickland. What did you find there in that lovely volume? Uh, I found uh, Xerxes I, the old Persian uh, king from 486 to 465 B.C., Um, So he's best known for his massive invasion of Greece. Uh, And it says here in in the encyclopedia that there's been much speculation on why he decided to invade Greece. Uh, The encyclopedia says it couldn't have been economic because Greece was not important then, which feels a little judgy, honestly, for encyclopedia. (laughs) But, But it says perhaps it was only a manifestation of royal absolutism because he considered himself a sovereign by divine right to whom opposition was as annoying as sacrilege. So he just went off to kick some Greek ass because he was pissed that they didn't think he was perfect. Uh, And then when he encountered trouble... That was was a lovely loop, but you got to perfect, yeah. 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 (laughs) And then when he encountered trouble en route to to the battle, um, the sea was uh, was high and was was difficult crossing, so he had the ocean whipped as punishment. Oh, boy. That is a pretty perfect story. Wow, really nicely done. Liz Winstead, you drew volume uh, one, which is one of my favorite volumes of any encyclopedia. What do you know about perfection now? So let's go with autopsy. (laughs) The early Egyptians did not study the dead human body for an explanation of disease and death. The Greeks and the Indians cremated their dead without examination, and the Romans, Chinese, Muslims all had taboos about opening the body, and human dissections were not permitted during the Middle Ages. Do you think it's because they considered the human body perfect in some form and didn't want to disrupt it in the afterlife? Yes. (laughs) And they were very smart. Not bad, Liz Winstead. I think you pulled a little something out of uh, not as much. Um, (laughs) Mike Pesca, uh, who drew a lovely volume nine, which yeah. is one of our uh, best ones. Sure. Uh, what can you tell us about perfection? So I give you Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. <laughs> Quimby was an American exponent of mental healing who is generally regarded as the founder of the New Thought Movement, a religio-metaphysical healing cult. Quimby employed hypnosis as a means of healing, but discovered that he could also heal by suggestion. 
I just chose Phineas Parkhurst Quimby because if you are the leader of a religio-metaphysical cult, you need to be named Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Perfect name to Perfect lead a cult. Perfect name. Very yes. well done, Mike Pesler. Melanie Whelan, uh, volume 10, I believe, which again is an almost perfect number in some circumstances. What can you tell us about perfection? So I have selected the word shellac, mm. <laughs> but it is used to finish furniture, floors, and various wood articles, oftentimes yielding things to become perfectly uh. frozen. Mm. Did we know that shellac is a commercial resin marketed in the form of amber flakes made from the secretions of the lac insect, a tiny scale insect, the lacifer So my question becomes, to perfect the decaying wooden pylons, could we find some of these lac insects, oh, incubate boy. them, and then put them underneath awesome. of the water? You are tying it together. Whoa. That was Whoa. something else. Okay. It is time now for our live audience to vote. Your two top choices will go on to the final round. So I'd like you now in the live audience to take out your phones and follow the texting instructions you see on the screen. <clears throat> All right, the live voting has closed. The votes have been tallied. And in fourth place, with 6% of the vote, that's hard to do. Nevertheless, we love you so much. Liz Winstead, Autopsies. In third place, one of you is probably feeling like I'm pretty okay, and, um, and, and Mike Pesca, you're not, I'm afraid. But Mike Pesca, great job in, in third place. So if you're a good process of elimination person, you've probably figured out by now that our two finalists are, in second place, Eliza Strickland, Xerxes I, and Melanie Whelan with the shellac beetle. Congratulations, the two of you. And now... The two of you will go on to our final round. In a moment, we will reveal a topic that's related in some fashion to tonight's theme, which is perfection. The two of you will then have to come up with an IDK on the spot using just your own big bad brains. Now, remember, on the very slight chance that one of you tries to fabricate an answer, remember our fact checker, A.J. Jacobs, is standing by. Now, what will the final topic be? It's been said that humankind's most perfect companion is the dog. And so the topic of our final round tonight, dogs. While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to please visit tmsidk.com to keep up with our show, including our live taping schedule and how you can get tickets or be a contestant. If you'd like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by tmsidk underscore show. All right, Eliza Strickland, we'll begin with you. Um, Tell us something we don't know that's worth knowing that's true about dogs. Okay. um, I remember uh, reporting on a story when I lived in San Francisco um, about a a scientist out there who was very interested in uh, psychiatric diseases like um, depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder and the like. So he was trying to figure out... um, the genetics of these disorders, and realized that he could do a really great study 
using dogs because for purebred dogs, you have the genealogies of these creatures going back. Uh, and, um, and some of these dogs have been bred to be perfect in one way, which has had terrible consequences in other ways. So, for example, border collies, uh, they're great herders, and they have obsessive compulsive disorders. So he could go through and figure out um, which ones had sort of been bred so far that they had tipped over from just being really good herders to poor, sad creatures, mm. and then figure out what the genetics were correlating mm. there. Very good. Melanie Whelan. That was not a nothing that Eliza Strickland just came up with. So, uh, so I know that you're not the kind of person who loses easily or willingly. You are a soul cycler. So, so, uh, <laughs> so tell us something we don't know about dogs, please. So I also remember doing important research years ago about dogs and what I learned was that my sister didn't know what to name her dog and it turns out the most popular dog name ever is Max which is the perfect Uh, dog name did you name the dog Max? hell no (laughs) what'd you name the dog? it's my sister's dog his name is Goosh which is a Persian word for ears because it's a French bulldog lovely Okay, so A.J. Jacobs, I know you haven't had much time, but I need you to find out if Melanie Whelan's sister looked up the most popular dog name, found it to be Max, and then actually named the dog Goosh. (laughs) Can you check that out for me? Uh, Well, I did look at, this looks like a very scientific website, (laughs) rover.com, and apparently Max is the number one male dog name. Way to go, Melanie Whelan. The female is uh, Bella. By the way, I did look up OCD in Border Collies, and uh, OCD behavior in, in dogs includes uh, chasing the tail, excessive barking, and flank sucking. All right, it is time now for our live audience to pick a winner. I don't think we need our fancy voting by text technology for this. I think we'll go with a throat vote where you make as much noise as you can with your mouth, your hands, your feet, whatever you've got. Remember, however, the criteria for these IDKs. Is it something you didn't know? Is it something worth knowing? Is it true? First up, let's hear what you think of Melanie Whelan's IDK about the most popular dog's name. I would say that is super respectable. And let's hear what you have to say for Eliza Strickland and the pursuit of... uh, There you go. Sounds to me like Eliza Strickland is our winner tonight. Congratulations. Really well done. That's our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know about perfection. I'd like to leave you with this quote from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the author, of course, of The Little Prince and other books. Perfection, he wrote is achieved not when there's nothing more to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. Thank you so much for our panelists, Melanie Whelan, Mike Pesca, and Liz Winstead. Thanks for our wonderful contestants, and thanks especially to all of you for coming to play Tell Me Something. And on next week's show, we get a little sporty. The theme is athletes' feats. Our panelists, Fox Sports 1 host Katie Nolan, NFL Players Association Executive Director Demora Smith, and the comedian Tammy Sager. What major professional sporting event 
awards the winner the extraordinarily modest prize of a free lobster dinner. Is it the Wasp Super Bowl? Or <laughs> It's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Andrew Dunn, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed the theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen at tmsidk.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. 